0: Welcome back to the Hunt and Harvest Health Podcast. This is Dr. Hillary Lampers. Today we are going to be uh, having some fun with answering questions that listeners have asked us related to health topics. About a month ago, I sent out an um, email to our newsletter list and asked the question: what is your biggest health question or concern? And lo and behold, a lot of you are reading that because I got responses. So I was lucky enough last week to be in Arizona with one of my best friends, Dr. Jillian Tita, who is on episode number four, where she talks about gut health and really has kind of catapulted a lot of uh, what we're doing with the gut restoration program and stuff into your laps and helping you to get a lot more information about how important your gut is. She sat down with me and we just had a discussion about a lot of your questions. We went through a number of emails from listeners and had fun just kind of picking apart what we thought might be some of the best solutions or answers to these questions. Um, And so today, that's what our podcast is going to be on, pretty straightforward. Uh, One thing I do want to say, though, is that remember, these are only recommendations and any recommendations that, that's considered, you do need assistance of your doctor, if so be it. Um, myself and Dr. Jillian are not diagnosing or treating your specific health conditions in this podcast. And any of these questions can have a multitude of answers that were not mentioned here. Um, Always do your own research and take into consideration your own unique conditions and what can help you, but never stop a medication or device without the assistance of your physician. So that's just a small disclaimer, especially since we are answering health questions. So we hope you find this podcast um, helpful If you want to get a hold of Dr. Jillian or learn more about what she's doing, you can go to fixyourdigestion.com. You can also find the show notes at huntharvesthealth.com slash podcast slash health questions one, the number one. And you can find kind of the list of things we're talking about and maybe some reference to some of the products we talk about and et cetera. So, all right. Enjoy this podcast. Hopefully it's helpful. And Today I'm super excited to be in uh, Arizona. I'm at my national naturopathic convention that's held yearly and I always come to it when it's in Arizona. I don't know why Arizona in July is so exciting for me but it's probably because most of the year I don't see the sun. So it's pretty hot here. It's been over 100 pretty much every day but um, it's a dry heat and the desert is a pretty intense place, but it's nice to be here in the sun. So, we are um, we have a little bit of a treat today because I'm here, and that also means that my besties are here. One of them is Dr. Jillian Tita, and you might remember her from episode number four um, about natural solutions for digestive health, where she talked about all kinds of interesting gut things that a lot of you have had so many questions about and we've had so many emails. And then, of course, we did the Gritty um, Bowman podcast where we talked a lot about gut health and seems to be a big topic on everybody's minds. We are going to answer some of your questions and I think it's appropriate that she's with us to answer some of these gut questions which is pretty fun. Um, so hi Julian. Hi Hilary thank you so much for having me on again I'm thrilled to be here yeah we uh, since since your podcast and then just kind of eventually talking about gut health and then we launched really your gut restoration program uh, back in January uh, to our platform. And we've had quite a few people download that off of our website and start using it. Some people are using the supplement. Some aren't. They're just using the dietary strategies. And we've gotten, like, so much success with that. I've had people come up to me at events or send me emails. We've had some before and after pictures where people are literally only doing that for 28 days. And it's just transforming the way they look and the way they feel. So it's pretty exciting. That thrills me to hear. I know. Yeah. And I think what's fun about it is the people are sticking with it and um, feeling better. And then it's really helping them to think deeper about their long-term health and their quality of life. And as you well know, kind of gut health is, you know, foundational to everything else. And even being here at this conference and listening to a lot of the topics that um, people are lecturing on is, you know, gut health is kind of one of these really the foundational key to so many um, diseases, disorders, um, a poor quality of health. And a lot of it is related to, you know, our poor food sources, maybe um, the stress in our life, our lack of sleep, all these kinds of things. So, um, the gut health, gut restoration thing has been huge for our population. So I wanted to thank you for sharing your, your wisdom with us. Oh, well, thank you again for having me on. Yeah. But yeah, the gut's like Grand Central Station for sure. Right. What I want to do today is I'm going to go through a number of emails that I've gotten from listeners out there. And me and Jill are just going to kind of chat and try to answer your questions best that we can. Uh, Some of them are easier. Some of them are much harder. Some of the solutions are simpler. Some of the solutions are much harder. So we'll do the best that we can. And as always, you can email um, me at lampers at stealthyhunter.com if you do have questions. And like I said, I'll try to respond if I can. But what I like to do is do these Q&As and kind of get a bunch of answers out there so that you also have it for whenever you want to just look this podcast up in reference to it. That's great. Okay, you ready, Jill? I'm ready. Let's get to it. Okay, so the first email is from Justin. So his wife has a condition where she has to take um, opiate medication for the pain. And since she's been doing that, she has pretty consistent constipation. And he uh, was wondering if there was anything that they can do related to diet or any lifestyle things, even maybe supplements related to that. Um, They do say that they've improved their health through, you know, they, he does hunt and they have wild game, uh, been taking some supplements, they stop sodas and they cut back on their sugars and refined flours as well. I think this is somewhat debilitating for her. And so he was wondering if we had any information.
1: Cool. Well, this is a great question because constipation secondary to opioid use is extremely, extremely common. So it's actually probably the most common side effects of opioid use. And clearly, there's lots of valid reasons to use opioids. So just saying, well, get off the opioids, like, doesn't actually work for folks. So that being said, what I would begin to consider is first acknowledge that Justin and his wife are making, like, really great changes in terms of diet. So that, of course, is wonderful. Lots of protein, lots of vegetables, fruits, healthy fats, those types of things. And then we also can look at some of the other foundational areas of digestive health. Like if she has a lot of bloating and gas and belching and upper GI effects, she might want to consider taking a digestive enzyme. And then she might want to also consider rotating in some fermented foods to help her gut flora, right, Mm -hmm. to help like those good guys. And then in terms of supplementation, she could also consider a probiotic, right, which is like the supplemental form of beneficial bacteria. Mm -hmm. And then I also really like magnesium glycinate, the glycinate form of magnesium. And for someone who's on opioids, I would be thinking a fairly high dose, like starting maybe at 600 milligrams in the evening. Um, However, I do want to be transparent in the sense that because these opioids are such strong drugs they often need more support than just like a little bit of magnesium or some probiotics. And in terms of looking at the conventional realm of tools that we can use, I will often do uh, rotations with Miralax where we'll have folks get on Miralax for several days just to flush them out. Uh, Miralax, I know a lot of people have problems with that, but it's not systemically absorbed and it does do the job. And in terms of looking at the hierarchy of Comfort and risk benefit for miralax use, I would actually be encouraging them to look at that
0: yeah she he mentioned that she 's taking mineral oil, and that 's what 's helping her right now and um, i don 't necessarily think that's a bad thing, but I think the miralax is probably is probably better. Because the mineral oil is going to likely make her deficient in some of her fat-soluble vitamins, like her vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin E, and uh, some baby carotene, and and so we don't want to add that into the mix where she's having you know um, some of these very important vitamin deficiencies, and and I also think that the uh, the Miralax is it's kind of low force, it right? Is low force. It's low yeah. force.
1: So comparing – so that's, that's a great point, Hill, actually, because if we compare something like mineral oil, which we think of like, oh, it's it's natural, right? Mm-hmm. It's natural. And Miralax, oh, that's a drug I'd get from my doctor. Um, the Miralax I actually think is a better option in this case.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It's going to do less harm and it's going to give greater benefit.
0: Yeah. So, you know, what is the, what is the reason that constipation happens with opioids?
1: So basically all of those receptors, right, all those opioid receptors – are centrally located in the gastrointestinal tract there's a real relationship there mm-hmm. and so that's what's that's what's going on right just blocking all of those receptors which also blocks pain but unfortunately also blocks the movement of the gi tract yeah so
0: it blocks the peristalsis the squeezing of the intestines mm-hmm. that rhythmic contraction and you'd need that to get stuff out mm-hmm. it's kind of like i think of a what is it, a cake frosting tube? Yeah. You got to push the frosting out to make a beautiful uh, design <laughs> or something it. on top of the cake. Yes. And uh, that's, that's really what peristalsis is doing. And it's, it's nervous stimulation. Mm-hmm. And you do have lots of opioid receptors in your central nervous mm-hmm. system, which is what it's affecting to decrease the pain, yes. but it's also attaching to those gut receptors, yes. which is stopping the squeezing. Yes. Yeah. And because it's so
1: strong, it's so strong. It's, very, it's difficult to overcome. So all the things that might work in the integrative perspective for a more functional constipation or a different type of constipation are maybe not going to work as well when, we, when we're on opioids and mm-hmm. have constipation secondary to opioid use.
0: Now, I know that uh, there are a couple medications as well if you are on opioids and you tell your physician you're really constipated because it's debilitating. Mm-hmm. There's people that will say, you know, and I'm sure, like, I can see from his email that this is obviously a debilitating condition for her. They'll say this is worse than the pain, mm-hmm. right? Like being constipated. Um, I think I, I I did some research on it. It's like some, sometimes people are going to the bathroom once every six days. That's really debilitating for people. You're going to feel horrible. And mm-hmm. you and I know all the things that you don't want in there for six days. But right. uh, And there are some medications that are stronger mm-hmm. that can – overcome a little bit of the opioid effect in the gut to help you go to the bathroom. But again, they are medications much stronger with a higher force than like a Miralax um, or magnesium or anything like that. So you're going to have a, you can have more side effects like abdominal pain and cramping and bloating and all that kind of stuff with the meds. But you can also talk to your you know, maybe your physician about those meds, if you qualify, not everybody qualifies for those. But yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult condition because the opioid is going to pretty much trump Mm -hmm. everything. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously you can't just quit opioid medication. No, it's an addictive, uh, It's an addictive substance and you have to either wean off of it or make sure that you have other, um, especially in something like a chronic condition where you're taking it for that pain, make sure that you have other things in place and that can help and et cetera. And not just quitting opioids uh, because of that. And in many cases, being on opioids is better than being in chronic pain. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Okay, Justin. So I hope that helps. Uh, (laughs) Thank you, Justin. Yeah. It's a difficult one. Okay, so the next one is kind of a many-parted question, but we'll we'll answer a few of these. Uh, this is Mark. Mark sends in that uh, they heard us on the Gritty Bowman podcast, and they're both in their late 40s. They had kids later in life. You know, they have decent weights, but they feel like they could lose a little bit of weight. Um, but they both, him and his wife, both deal with a ton of aches and pains, like joint and muscle pain, um, and they also have Lyme disease. And which is kind of the side effect of Lyme disease can be all this joint and muscle pain, so keep that in mind. Uh, they have decent diets, but they're making changes. Uh, so he wants to know about Lyme disease. And I'll just kind of preface this by uh, here at this convention, I'm really looking forward to. I'll be interviewing a Lyme expert. And I've gotten a lot of feedback. I I put some stuff out about, you know, what people want to know about Lyme disease. And holy cow, a lot of you out there want to learn about Lyme because it seems it's a very um, common condition these days. It's a very confusing condition. Uh, Diagnosis and treatments are, are difficult and confusing as well. And so Lyme disease is a really big, broad topic, all the way from acute Lyme to chronic Lyme to co-infections to uh, autoimmune uh, interactions, et cetera, et cetera. So we will actually be talking considerably about Lyme disease very shortly. So uh, Mark, if you can hold on for that, stay tuned for that podcast. Do you have anything you want to say about Lyme? What I would say about Lyme is that it's
1: extremely heterogeneous, meaning... You know, a hundred different people can have Lyme Mm -hmm. disease and it will look a hundred different ways. And despite its complexity, often the most basic foundational things can be extremely helpful. Mm -hmm. So again, looking at nutrition, right? It's like we're going to just be repeating ourselves, looking at nutrition Good protein, fruits, vegetables, finding and eliminating food sensitivity, making sure you're hydrated, making sure that you are sleeping, making sure that you are moving both in like an exercise capacity and then like a more recovery or non-exercise capacity like gentle walking, restorative yoga, those types of things, having good relationship good communication, all of these foundational aspects of health when we're getting into these complex diseases or chronic disease or these complex pain syndromes or something like the rat's nest that is Lyme disease, falling back on these basics becomes crucial. I know we want to get into very fancy protocols for these complex conditions, and there, you know, of course we can, but we cannot do that at the expense of taking care of the basics.
0: Yeah, I think that that comes in the confusion for people is they are diagnosed with the disease and they're given the antibiotic, Uh, which is usually the main treatment in acute, you know, you have an acute infection, bullseye, uh, rash, all this stuff. Okay. They give you antibiotics and some people, it goes away and they catch it early enough, but some people will do that regimen and they don't get the benefit and it doesn't kill everything and it goes into chronic Lyme. And then there's all these very confusing protocols and expensive treatments and Mm -hmm. long-term antibiotics and et cetera, et cetera. And, if you're forgetting these foundational pieces that are going to, are, are the basis of even really making those other treatments viably work, uh, it, it doesn't, it, it's not beneficial. So um, I know that uh, Dr. Ingalls, who I'm going to be interviewing, a, a big foundational piece of his thing is gut health. Yes. And how important the gut is obviously, as we've talked about in the immune system. Mm -hmm. And if you think of something like Lyme disease, which is a infection from a spirochetic, you know, it's an invasion. uh, Your immune system has to be able to Fight that and work it, work against it, or fight it and all this stuff. And so the problem nowadays is a lot of people are walking around before they're even bit by a tick with dysfunctional immune systems and poor gut health, and you know which is where most of your immune system resides. So remembering that even after Lyme disease, working on those again foundational pieces is so vital for possibly how you're going to respond to treatment. Um, and so you may be one of these people who has a healthier immune system, you get the, the acute thing, you take the medications, and it, it gets better. Or maybe you're somebody who isn't that lucky, and you have to kind of start from the ground up with all these things. And a lot of the treatments trash your gut. Sure. Right? That's a hard one. So uh, we'll talk a lot more about Lyme coming up. Okay, so his next question is, he has, i on his father's side of the family, cardiovascular disease, heart disease, and he's taking an 81 milligram aspirin, which is really common to put people on uh, as a kind of prophylactic for clotting, um, and he wants to know, he's also on a high blood pressure medication. He didn't tell me what his blood pressures are before the medication, so I, I wouldn't know what he was at before the medication, but... Um, He's doing some exercise, but he really wants to know what are some natural blood thinners, um, like food and some other natural blood thinners that he could take. Is the aspirin healthy for him? Uh, and kind of that—that that was his question more about, you know, heart disease is a—it's a—it's a big umbrella. Uh, mm-hmm. There's so many different facets to the cardiovascular system and what can happen there. So, do you want to just address maybe uh, blood thinners first? So first I would say that he shouldn't
1: adjust any medications without first talking about it with exactly. his doctor, right? So you don't just like stop your aspirin that was prescribed by your doctor, but the, to that point there are there are foods and herbs and substances that can have more blood thinning effects. Um and my favorite for this, which is also delicious and scrumptious, and one of my favorite cooking condiments is garlic. Mm-hmm. So garlic and all of the plants that are in the allium or the onion family, like leeks and green onions or scallions and wild onion and all of these types of things have have really excellent sort of blood-thinning capacities. And then my second favorite is the herb uh, curcumin, right? Mm-hmm. Turmeric or mm-hmm. curcumin is the active
0: constituent of turmeric. So I really like that one as well. Yeah. Uh, some of the foods I think people may eat on a more routine basis, obviously garlic. I think people eat, mm-hmm. you know, if you're mm-hmm. eating a healthy diet, you're eating a good amount of garlic and onions and that, uh, cherries is one, um, some berries, uh, most berries have some avocados, have natural blood thinners in them, uh, peppers like cayenne, uh, chili peppers. Those are all. And if you think of like eating cayenne or a chili pepper, what does it do? It it brings blood right to the surface, and so you get a lot of blood flow into the area, helping to vasodilate. Those yeah, that's vessels a good point. They're stuff. good,
1: good vasodilators, yes. helping to lower blood
0: pressure. Yes. So these foods, those foods have been shown to kind of interact in the clotting process as well as w- is what we're talking about when we're talking a blood thinner. And uh, just as far as clotting goes, you know, for those people out there who aren't physicians, you know, you're under, you, maybe you don't understand what clotting is and what's happening there, but your platelets are um, produced by the liver and, or not by the liver, the, the liver controls the clotting of your platelets. Platelets are a, a, a cell within the blood that basically clot. And obviously there's very important reasons why you want to clot. right? Right. So you've probably heard of hemophilia, right? You're not going to clot. You get a little tiny cut and, uh, you're dead. Okay. Because you need your blood to clot. And, um, but it's also healthy not to be clotting too much, right? right? So there's also disorders where people are clotting too much. And in cardiovascular disease, especially with stroke, which is what we see most of it, you know, like, um, stroke in the brain or even in the lungs or any of these places we're going to people immediately people would be put on blood thinners because now the blood is you threw a clot or something and so the doctors don't want you to be throwing clots or all your little platelets are clogging up together right we want to keep those platelets activity down yeah
1: fluid we don't want them all clumping together we want them sort of spread apart
0: right and so um you know, that, that's the importance of your platelets, but the blood thinning is also kind of this important aspect as well. There's that happy medium that we want. So you don't want to be throwing clots and you also don't want your blood to be too thin. So there's that other side of, if you're eating lots of blood thinning foods, foods are lower on that force, right? They're low force. So people are like, oh, I shouldn't eat cherries and avocados and chili peppers and onions all at the mm-hmm. same, garlic all at the same time. No, you should be, right? Because they have other constituents too and other activities that are going on. So the food is the best way to go for that kind of low force, natural, consistent blood thinning. If you start taking something like an aspirin, which even an 81-milligram aspirin isn't really that much. It's a baby aspirin. And there has been some good research on aspirin. I won't say just because it's a drug that it's horrible. You know, they've even shown people who take aspirin have decreased incidence of Alzheimer's. I think, again, that has to do with blood flow and inflammation. Inflammation. But the thing with aspirin is over time, it can be irritating to the stomach lining. It can be irritating to the liver and to the kidneys. And sometimes, most of the time, people are taking aspirin for pain and inflammation. They're not taking it um, always just to keep this clotting down unless they're older. And like this guy, the doctor's like, oh, I'll just take an aspirin and that'll cure all your problems to keep you from clotting, right? But um, again, if you're eating all these blood clotting, um, blood thinning foods, and then you're taking aspirin and then maybe on top of it, you're taking some other... Things and they're decreasing, you know, the th- a bunch of fish oils or whatever, because fish oil can also thin your blood, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then you might want to, you know, consider like how much blood thinning stuff you're on, <laughs> and then if you add into something like, let's say, you do have a stroke and you throw a clot, now you're on warfarin, right? Okay, and there's probably a lot of you out there listening, maybe older, you know, over 50, you've been put on warfarin, and now you've been told not to eat any of these foods, right? Not to eat green leafy vegetables because of vitamin K, because it'll interrupt the process. And then it gets even more confusing as to now what can I eat because my blood is too thin on this warfarin. But I would say that food, again, is low force. Yes.
1: Well, and the nice thing about being on – or not the nice thing. When folks get on warfarin or even some of these newer drugs, they are able to have their clotting factors monitored. Right. So you can make adjustments for – the nutrition that they're eating. So I really like that. Mm-hmm. And then what I would just add to kind of wrap this up is we don't want to, again, neglect those foundations. So what else helps than the blood? Well, staying hydrated. If you are mm-hmm. adequately hydrated, your blood is going to have more water in it, which is going to make it slightly more dilute. If you're dehydrated, the concentration of your platelets and the other cells and all of those things goes up. It becomes more sticky in a sense. So let's not forget to stay hydrated. And then let's not forget to move, right? And just mm-hmm. make sure we're having excellent circulation.
0: Right. I think that exercise piece is a huge piece. In a lot of instances when people throw a clot, they're throwing a clot in instances where they're not being active or they've been sitting too long. Sitting is a big one. Great Mm -hmm. way to get DVT in your leg and throw a clot. And so activity is really important to move your blood. Good points. And so many people are dehydrated and they don't know they're chronically walking around dehydrated. Yes. So
1: if you're doing lots of coffee or lots of tea or sports drinks or Gatorade or Monsters or like these types of things, you want to make sure that you're having like an extra four to six to eight ounces of water or herbal tea, or broth, or some non-caffeinated hydrating beverage to offset these highly dehydrating and Mm diuretic-type drinks as
0: well. Yeah, caffeine. Mm -hmm. Caffeine dehydrates you. Okay, so hopefully that helps with the blood thinning um, thing. The next one is he asked about gut health, and we're talking plenty about that right now. And then his last question is how to find a naturopathic doctor in his area. Um, and maybe we can give a little bit of background. You know, does insurance pay for them and any more general info? Let me give a little bit on that.
1: Well, the easiest way to find a naturopath, a medically trained naturopath in your community is to go to naturopathic.org, mm-hmm. which is our uh, national website. That's essentially a directory of medically trained naturopathic doctors naturopathic, licensure, and insurance coverage varies heavily state by state. So I'm not sure what state he lives in, but um, I would start at the national level. And then from there, typically each state has their own state associations. And so you can Google that as well, find a provider there. And then I like to tell folks, just make a couple calls and like chat with some of these docs or the, their their office managers and see which one feels the best. Insurance coverage... Varies heavily, and in most cases, it's not covered. Mm -hmm. So, in most now, I'm
0: in Washington State, which has been had naturopathic medicine quite a while. We do have insurance coverage for people, you know, who live in Washington who have it under their policies, and it's we are considered primary care providers, and so most people have that on their coverage, and they can choose a naturopath as their primary care provider. Uh, but Washington, Oregon, there's a few other states. I mean, that's very rare, and, and most states are that they're not covered by insurance. Uh, personally, I, I work in an insurance state, and I don't take insurance, and it's because insurance, the game of insurance, is for physicians is. Very tricky. And uh, truthfully, you know, as naturopaths, our our foundational thing is, you know, we want to spend time with you. Uh, We want to get to know you. We want to get into some of these deeper questions that maybe your primary care physician doesn't have the time for. And what I like to remind people about conventional medicine, you know, there's a need for everything here. I don't like to bash on anybody. I feel that, you know, obviously there's so many more people that live these days because of conventional medicine, et cetera. But I also think that at certain times in people's lives, and depending on what they have going on for them, they need different ears and they need different eyes and they need different ways of looking at it. And so, you know, most people who go into medicine, they go into medicine with a compassion for people and for helping people. And so, you know, if your physician isn't able to spend more than 10 minutes with you, they're probably in a system that makes it hard for them to do that. Right. So as naturopaths, we're, we're fortunate that we can maybe spend more time and we can get deeper with you. And if your physician's open to it, we can work with them, right? Yes. We can be in collaboration with them. And that's, uh, as time goes on and we start to see more and more of this medicine out there, the collaboration is really the key to getting patients healthier. Cool. Okay, Mark, that's a lot of questions. So hopefully that helps you out. Thanks, Mark. Yep. Uh, The next one is Steve. Um, Steve heard us on Gritty as well. Uh, and he is 52 years old and he's an archery elk hunt hunter. He just did his first archery elk hunt last year and he loved it, but he feels like he needs to be healthier to maximize his chance for success in the mountains. Um, he has a very demanding job and works 12 to 14 hours a day, and he doesn't feel like he has a lot of time to work out. He's improving his diet, um, but he has lots of room for healthier options. Uh, all that being said, are there any foods that can help to reduce fatigue and general muscle and joint soreness? I think that's something he's dealing with uh, and also probably related to working a 12- to 14-hour day and just not getting a lot of physical activity and his age. So any foods that can help reduce fatigue in general muscle soreness?
1: This is a fabulous question. So just knowing the sort of bare bones of... Steve's life, what I would suggest to Steve is that he look at the actual foods that he's eating now, right? So like, what are you doing for breakfast? What are you doing for lunch? What are you doing for dinner? What I would coach Steve up on is making sure that in the earlier part of the day that he's getting in a good amount of protein because protein early in the day is going to help balance blood sugar, improve his energy, and reduce cravings Later in the day, that might make him choose foods that are less desirable. Okay, Mm -hmm. So front-loading protein and then also adding in foods that are very dense in antioxidants and plant chemicals and these types of things. So I like to say like eating the rainbow, right? So like red, orange, yellow, green, blue, black, purple, all of these foods should be incorporated in. So I like to talk about bringing foods in first, bringing lots of water in first, making sure he's staying hydrated, especially if we're talking about like a 14 hour, like physically demanding shift, like absolutely has to be staying hydrated. And then we can take stock of how many, how much food is consumed that could be contributing to fatigue and or joint pain. And that looks like things like excessive processed flours, excessive processed wheat products, sugar. Potentially nightshades. So, Mm -hmm. nightshades are tomatoes, peppers, eggplant, white potatoes. About 10 to 15% of the population is sensitive to these foods. So, that's a small amount of the overall population, but it is just interesting to look at because maybe you're one of those 10 to 15%. And then the other thing for fatigue, I really like vitamin C because vitamin C is a nutrient that the adrenal glands love. And if we are working a very physically demanding 12 to 14 hour shift, and we're maybe not getting enough sleep, our adrenals are being taxed. So we need to feed them. So we feed them with vitamin C, we feed them with protein, we feed them with micronutrition. Mm -hmm. So we incorporate these things first, and then we begin to shave other things off.
0: Okay. I think I think another big question I get from listeners is the whole muscle and joint soreness. I think it's pretty common, mm-hmm. especially in people you know my age and older. Yep. Uh, but the the whole idea of like, oh well, if I'm having all this muscle and joint soreness, you know, do I have like a disease or do I have like rheumatoid arthritis? Mm. I get that question too. You know, what about rheumatoid arthritis? Right. Uh, the presentation of like some simple joint pain or aching muscles and stuff is very different than like a rheumatoid arthritis presentation, which is an autoimmune disease.
1: Right. Can you
0: comment on that a little bit?
1: Sure. So first there's normal wear and tear on our joints and muscles, right? right? So normal wear and tear that would create sort of consistent joint pain that maybe gets better with movement, maybe is worse in the morning. This we would consider osteoarthritis, mm-hmm. right? Right. It's just sort of like your quote unquote regular arthritis. Rheumatoid arthritis, as you just mentioned, is a type of autoimmune condition where the immune system is attacking the joints and destroying the the synovial fluid in them Mm -hmm. and creating very large, enlarged, angry, swollen joints. And this is both are chronic conditions, but they do have different sort of pathological origins and states. Rheumatoid arthritis would be diagnosed via blood testing, and it's a very it's a very easy sort of blood test. Any primary care doctor is going to be able to tell you fairly quickly do you have osteoarthritis or do you have rheumatoid arthritis. For supplementation for osteoarthritis, there's a couple there's a couple superstars here, uh, including glucosamine sulfate. At about a dose of 1,500 milligrams, one to three times daily, is probably one of the widest studied natural sort of interventions for osteoarthritis. This helps sort of preserve the integrity of the soft tissues. And then we've got, again, turmeric or curcumin really powerful anti-inflammatory i have a lot of my athletes and and non-athletes and just folks with musculoskeletal pain on mm-hmm. curcumin i take curcumin myself every single day i love it for muscle pain like let's not so now let's kind of move from joint pain to muscle pain i really like glutamine the amino acid l glutamine mm-hmm which interestingly enough is fabulous not just for muscle soreness and delayed onset muscle soreness, which is like, you know, if you work out and then two days later you're like wicked sore, like it takes all that time to get really, really sore. That we call DOMS or delayed onset muscle soreness. Glutamine is wonderful for that, about three to nine grams daily. Glutamine also happens to be the preferential fuel Or food source for the cells that line our gastrointestinal tract top to bottom. So you can sort of kill two birds with one stone by taking a very simple amino acid, uh, L-glutamine.
0: Yeah, L-glutamine is really a miracle thing. And the coolest thing about it is there's like no side effect. Right. I haven't found, have you found a side effect in people? Some people will
1: have a little bit of GI upset with it or they'll,
0: maybe a little diarrhea or something.
1: Yep. But it's fairly well tolerated. Interestingly enough, glutamine is the most common amino acid that's found in foods as well so of course when you're taking like a glutamine powder you're taking like a like sort of a concentrated dose but it's very safe it's very well tolerated um and, it, and it's fairly inexpensive and it covers a wide variety of conditions right so i like it yeah i
0: love that one another one that i've actually been taking for um so a little bit of my back history here in the last couple of months before i started practicing archery And one of the reasons I really didn't want to start archery was I was having a lot of chronic shoulder pain. Um, In my practice, as you know, you know, we do some of the same treatments and I do some body work and I was a massage therapist for 20 years. So I've had a lot of history of like, you know, some shoulder pain, arm pain, hand pain, that kind of thing. And just uh, after the first year, I started having a lot of shoulder pain in both my shoulders. Not really like super joint pain, but like muscular pain. It was hard for me at the end of my day to really do anything else. And Ryan's like, "Oh, you need to start shooting a bow and arrow." And I'm like, "That sounds like the most <laughs> torturous event that I could You're ever like, do." No, I don't. And so uh, I realized I needed to to really get myself on a on a more specific supplement regimen and diet regimen for this muscle and and joint soreness. And one thing I discovered, uh, I discovered that archery actually helped me because of exercise and isolating those muscles and moving those joints and that ice, uh, the, the, the kinetic movement of archery where you pull, push and hold all at the same time. Uh, it's, it's actually very beneficial for muscle development, ligament stability, that kind of thing. But uh, there's this substance called PQQ. And I started taking it in a mitochondrial support product that I have. And for those of you out there, these are big words. But the mitochondria, what they're starting to find is kind of, they're thinking a lot of the root causes of a lot of kind of chronic diseases is mitochondrial dysfunction. And mitochondria are these little cells within our cells. They're called the powerhouse of the cell. And they are what utilize oxygen to create ATP or energy, right? So you need CoQ10, oxygen oxygen. And they're, they're basically turning on your cell and it's creating energy. And that's what gives you energy. So a lot of disorders where fatigues are, fatigue is a big component or like muscle fatigue, aching, all these things, we see mitochondrial dysfunction. So I started taking this, this uh, mitochondrial thing called PQQ and um, it basically re-stimulates the mitochondrial signal. Yeah. And it's really good for delayed soreness after exercise. So if you love exercise, but you hate exercise, because every time you exercise, you get this really bad delayed soreness that doesn't go away for like two days. Whoa, my muscle soreness was just like, I was not having extended muscle soreness. Yeah. So that is another thing I would look up uh, for those of you out there to kind of Help your mitochondria and your energy, that muscle soreness, that mitochondrial support, which is really just some of these things Jillian's talked about glutamine, uh, uh, CoQ10, uh, B vitamins, uh, turmeric, curcumin, antioxidants, all these things. And the, the PQQ has been a really interesting one uh, for that mitochondrial health. So I just wanted to help that. It also helps your brain, I hear. It helps you to uh, think better, which we're always looking for. Perfect. Perfect. Holy cow. Yeah. Oh, this is another big one. So I'd love to hear your take on sleep apnea. This is from Sean. He's d- dealt with severe sleep apnea. He's not hes not obese. He's just a little bit overweight. Um, he's working on changing that and eating better. But he'd love to get rid of his CPAP or even his sleep apnea. Uh, you and I do deal with quite a bit of sleep apnea in our practices. Uh, and again, these foundational pieces are very important for sleep apnea, right? Yes. But uh, what do you have to say about sleep apnea?
1: So let's break it down. So first, I would never ever recommend that somebody just stop their CPAP machine. No, because what? As first of all, but also let me honor that I understand. It is uncomfortable, it's not sexy, it's weird, it's in the way, it doesn't make sense. It's loud. It's loud. All of these things. I totally, totally get it. But what it is doing is giving you an invaluable service of giving you oxygen. Because what sleep apnea is, is essentially when we're asleep, we are not getting the oxygen that we need through breathing. It's like we can't breathe well. So what this means is that overnight, our bodies are becoming oxygen-deprived, which means our metabolism is becoming deprived, which means in the morning, you're going to wake up, you're going to be exhausted, you're going to be more likely to be irritable, you're going to have fatigue, you're going to be more likely to have fat loss resistance, right? So if there is weight to lose, it's going to be more difficult to lose. Mm -hmm. You're going to have an overactive, like sympathetic nervous system, which is like being in that fight or flight mode. So oxygen performs an enormous like service for you.
0: Well, oxygen is just what I was talking about in the mitochondria. Yes. It's required for the energy for of everything. ATP. When your body stops consuming oxygen, you die. Yes. Eventually and as you know, a drowning or It doesn't take very long for your cells to die if you don't have oxygen. Yes. So sleep apnea is you're just kind of slowly over time depriving (laughs) your mitochondria of energy and they just start... Kapoo, 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 right? Yep. And this is why you wake up in the morning and you feel like you got hit by the Mack truck Mm -hmm. and then you want to sleep all afternoon and why your spouse is afraid to go to sleep because they think you're going to die Mm -hmm. in your sleep because you're not breathing. Yeah, because you're snoring and all these types of things. So. You don't have to be overweight to have sleep apnea. A right. lot of people have it because they've they've got inflammation, they've got, you know, allergies. Uh, maybe they have structural issues, deviated yeah. septum, yep. these kinds of things. Yeah, but so we most should... common people they will be overweight and it will make your weight worse yes. if you don't treat it. Well, it does
1: become sort of like this runaway cycle where if someone is having apnea because they are overweight and they're not being treated with a CPAP machine, it's going to be more difficult for them to lose the weight when they're chronically sleep deprived. Yeah. A lot of our patients will actually begin to drop weight when they get on the CPAP machine. Mm-hmm. So let's go. So let's kind of go over some of the common reasons for sleep apnea, top to bottom of what I see. Mm-hmm. So, first, on the structural realm, like you said, there can be a deviated septum. Some people can have so that would be like a hard structure, right? Like a bone structure issue. Then we can have issues with the soft tissue, right? Mm -hmm. Issues in our tissues. So we can have an elongated soft palate. We can have a really large uvula. We can have really large tonsils where when these, when we fall asleep, these structures relax, become very like kind of boggy and just sort of flop and fall into our airway right?
0: Now we've seen some interesting. Have you seen some interesting surgeries people have had done that sure. have sleep apnea? They remove all that. Yep. They even remove your uvula. They remove your tonsils. They remove your adenoids. They pull out your turbinates in your nose. Now you have all this space, and what people still have sleep apnea. Yep.
1: So then we can get into things like physiologic cause. Mm-hmm. Oh, and one more thing on structure. So even though folks may not be obese, in men, if the neck. Is greater than 17 inches in circumference or 43 centimeters, this is like a high risk. It's like a high risk for apneas. Hmm. So, even I would say, like in that 14 to 17 um, uh, inch realm. So, if your neck is that large, we still might want to think about getting your weight down a little bit to just decrease the amount of tissue that flops onto your airway when you're asleep and you know right when you're asleep you're unconscious like everything relaxes and kind of flops so the next circumference piece is very interesting now on the sort of non-structural uh, aspects of sleep apnea a very common one that we see is someone that might have an allergic type picture like have a lot of environmental allergies and or food sensitivity where there is a lot of inflammation again in the in the larynx the back of the throat because again this is a very area, uh, an area that is very dense in lymphatic tissue, like your tonsils and all of these things where the immune system lives. So if they're all activated and sort of ticked off, you're going to have more inflammation there. If you have more inflammation, this tissue is taking up more space, right? So then when you fall asleep, the tissue flops into the airway, right? So for folks that are maybe quite skinny or don't have a large neck circumference and don't have a deviated septum, I would look at diet. And then also environmental allergies. So, do you have sleep apnea all year round? Does it get worse in the spring when like all the trees are blooming? Does it get right. worse in the fall? Like those types of things. So, those are the those are the ways you want to sort of stratify it. And then if you're not hydrated, right, you're going to be more sort of inflamed and prone to those and of things. And
0: if you uh, drink alcohol, especially
1: before yes. bed, yes. So alcohol can be a huge trigger, and salt can be a huge trigger mm-hmm. as well. So if you eat like a really salty, I don't know, like nachos or something, like corn chips, salty corn chips with like cheese melted on top and queso sauce and uh, you know some salsa and like Yummy. you know refried beans sounds delicious, but then like you're, like, you're oh, down head here in Arizona, yeah.
0: <laughs> nachos,
1: but those and are
0: drinking tequila, yes. you're gonna have some severe sleep apnea.
1: So I think a lot of uh, a lot of sort of managing these conditions is noticing the situations or their circumstances in which they get better or worse, which just requires us to be sl- pay a little bit of attention to ourselves, focus on the signals that our body is giving us, and just inject a little bit of mindfulness. And you often can begin to find patterns.
0: I think another interesting thing, and uh, I discovered this through my aunt, is she was dealing with chronic sinus infections. She didn't have sleep apnea of it. Um, so think of how many hours a day you sleep in your bed, how yeah. Even if you're only in your bed four or five hours, you're laying there with blankets and pillows yeah. and linens and maybe children and clothes and all animals. Some people are sleeping with their animals. Okay, so think of all those things that are in your environment while you're laying there unconscious and you're breathing all this in. Right. And my aunt found out she was allergic to down- she had a down comforter and was getting chronic sinus infections. She changed to a synthetic comforter. Her sinus infections went away. And so maybe very, especially looking at your sleep environment, mm-hmm. what kind of, you know, are you having an allergy to something that, are you having allergy to your bed? Is your bed too old? Are your pillows too old? Should your dogs be sleeping in your bed or your cat be sleeping in your bed? Do you have air filtration in your bedroom? Do you have mold in your bedroom? Like making sure that you, those environmental factors, like you said, are especially in the bedroom mm-hmm. being addressed. Yes. Yeah.
1: And we don't want to blow off sleep apnea. No. I know our culture is like oh I can you know we're all sort we all sort of pride ourselves on being like underslept and overproductive but sleep apnea is correlated again not just with like fat loss resistance and obesity but also cardiovascular disease increased risk of stroke increased risk of hypertension so this is not a benign thing.
0: I wrote an article a couple years ago on They did a very large study where they tested people who had sleep apnea, that developed sleep apnea over a number of years. This was men that worked uh, night shift jobs or something, Mm. and they tested them for sleep apnea. If you had sleep apnea untreated, your chances of being diagnosed with a cancer was four times greater than the people who did not have it. And that is really important because we do see so much increased rates of cancer, I feel like. And a cancer just really loves kind of, it thrives in a non-oxygenated environment. It will build its own little kind of cocoon, you know, areas. And so, again, thinking about things like that, you know, your longer term health. If you're a 25-year-old guy right now and you're dealing with sleep apnea, don't blow it off and think that you'll deal with it when you're 40 because you're just setting yourself up for long-term oxygen deprivation and really a poor quality of life. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Now, here's another thing to consider. Because more and more folks are being diagnosed with sleep apnea, the market is sort of rising to meet the needs. And so there are several different models of CPAP machines, right. many of which are becoming less obtrusive, like less intrusive, less obstructive And then there's also a variety of mouth guards and dental appliances. So if what I usually tell people to do is see if you can tolerate the CPAP machine for a period of two to three weeks. If it is absolutely intolerable, you call your prescribing physician and you say, doc, this is absolutely intolerable. I'm actually getting worse sleep. It's not helping. I I can't deal with it. Is there there another alternative that we can try? Is there another model that we can try where I don't feel like I'm having, I don't know, cold air shoved up my nose all night? So there are, I just want to sort of assuage folks that there are other alternatives to like the conventional CPAP machine. There's newer and better and less intrusive
0: models coming out all the time, again, in a variety of dental appliances. Yes. And just a last quick side note, there's a few different types of sleep apnea, right? So you can have obstructive sleep sleep apnea, which is what most people have. And this is related to an obstruction in the airway. Yeah. It's kind of what we're talking about now. There's a different one Uh, that's neurologically related. It's less common, but it is more neurologically related. And so that's a little bit more severe. Like you have to be really diligent with that because that's going to affect your nervous system pretty heavily. But most people have obstructive sleep apnea. Okay. Here's a good one. This is Scott. He, he, he sent us a thing and said um, his wife has leaky gut and he listened to our podcast and he's really, it's really helped him to understand her dilemmas and better support her. So we're happy about that. Any, any way we can get your spouse to support you in your health things, that's always know, good. Always good. So he's mm. going to be 48. She's going to be 50 this year and they both deal with um, some fatigue. They were wondering about energy, ways to help natural energy. We've kind of talked about some of this already. Yeah.
1: So the night here I'm gonna say one thing about leaky gut, because I, I know leaky gut is like such a sexy buzzword right now. The nice thing, if there is a nice thing about leaky gut, is that it is absolutely treatable. It is absolutely not a one way street. And I don't want anybody that is listening to think that if they have leaky gut that they're going to have it forever or anything like that. When we are diagnosing leaky gut. What we're actually talking about is a chronic state in the lining, particularly of the small intestine, okay, whereby the cells that are lining that small intestine are sort of spread a little bit further apart than they should be. Normally, they're supposed to stand really tight together, like shoulder to shoulder, like a row of soldiers. In leaky gut, like little gaps show up. And what this leads to is inappropriate mixing of our immune system and the foods that we're eating, our natural bacteria that's on board. And this creates an inflammatory response and immune provocation. This greater inflammatory response calls more immune cells to the area they're making more antibody, they're making more inflammatory compounds, and then they call more immune cells to the area. So we describe it as an uncontrolled fire. Leaky gut can happen normally after a really hard run or after really hard exercise. So we're talking about two different things. So when we're talking about the chronic leaky gut, this can lead to this sort of over-inflamed state, which is going to be sapping to your energy naturally. So the approach that I take for handling leaky gut is finding and eliminating food sensitivity, right? And or eating for your symptoms. So if you have irritable bowel syndrome or you're highly bloated, this might look like reducing things like gluten and foods that are high on that FODMAP scale, right? Those like hard to digest fibers, it looks like increasing digestive enzymes, it looks like helping your gut flora, and then it looks like taking products like glutamine that help stitch back together that lining. So taking care of that business is going to help the person with leaky gut with their energy quite a bit. Now, more general energy recommendation, of course, we've sort of already covered this turf protein in the morning right your mm-hmm. basics like it's back to basics i know we us humans are always looking for like well what's the like one thing what's the answer and the answers are so boring because they're so obvious mm-hmm. get good sleep mm-hmm. stay hydrated go for a walk mm-hmm. maybe do a little in- a more intense exercise here and there eat lots of protein eat lots of vegetables enjoy your life sit down and chew your food
0: laugh those types of things go into nature right Go into nature part of our thing here Maybe grow your own food and get the benefit of, you know, seeing something grow and, you know, get to eat it or, you know, like in Ryan's case, kill your own food and get to commune with that, commune with that animal, you know, Uh, it's, yeah, those simple things. and, And we know as docs that. Man, it's the simple things that are the hardest to get people to do. It really is. And it's, I always struggle with why is it so hard for these, for people, even including myself, like why is it so hard for these foundational things to do? And I I think I've kind of come to this place where I, I think it's because nowadays um, it's just so, we have so many choices to make the wrong decision. Yeah. It's so much easier for us to make the wrong decision that it's almost a norm that you should make the wrong decision. And I'm using wrong loosely here, right? Like not like wrong is you're bad for doing it, but you know, if you're, if you were at a restaurant and you had your choice of here's a beautiful salad with hemp seeds and a kale and a glass of water with lemon versus here's a, a nice steak with a baked potato, some sour cream, a, one of those big, beautiful rolls with butter and iced tea, and then you're going to get a piece of apple pie afterwards. Oh man, you know, most people are probably going to go for that second choice because it just pulls to your, you know, thing. But it's also because over so many years we've been fed that food that our body now craves that food, right? Mm. The salad no longer becomes this essential piece of our cravings. We don't crave salad. And you have patients now, you know, when you start getting health healthier, I mean, I'll come on an event like this and, you know, we won't eat great all the time. It's like I go home, I'm just craving food out of the mm-hmm. garden, right? Yeah. Craving fresh food. And so a lot of people haven't quite gotten there yet. But.
1: Well, we have a lot of responsibilities too, you know? Yeah. Um, when I tell people to sleep more, they're like, well, I have little kids, I have to like commute to work, I have to like work at a job I hate all day. I have to commute back to work. I have to pick up the kids. I have to get them fed. I have to do homework and like they don't get any time for themselves. And so a lot of times I think we have a very difficult time simply prioritizing ourselves uh, to make even these easy changes that might make our bottom line state of being a little bit more peaceful or a little bit more healthy. Often, not always, but often it takes something catastrophic for us to make real change right? Unfortunately. And that's human nature. I mean, we're, we are sort of wired for the easy, the easy path. And sometimes that easy path is convenience, even if it's not necessarily what's best for us. Mm -hmm. Next question. (laughs) These are great questions, by the way.
0: I know. I mean, I get these emails from listeners and I'm like, holy cow, these people are, they're getting me. Get me or- well, and I
1: think they're great because I think that every human can relate to all of these things, which to me is just fascinating because even though we're all so different, we have a very common human experience. Like there's no new stories. Like who can't relate to feeling fatigued? Who can't relate to feeling overwhelmed? Who can't relate to like, wow, I wish I had a little more energy or we can all relate to these things. And so in that way, it's really cool because we can share and help each other.
0: Yeah. And I think this goes really well kind of into the next question. So obviously, our demographic here is is mainly men, 75% men. And I think our age demographic is probably 35 to 65-year-old men. And it's hard for these older men to kind of ex- accept as a bad word, but to... How do they move into their older years and still have the mental energy or the thoughts of wanting to climb the mountain and do these big hunts and be out there in nature and do this? But maybe they have the joint pain, the muscle pain, they're not as young as mm-hmm. even the 40 year old guy that can still go out there and prove himself on the mountain and do this. And there's, I've gotten a number of emails, like one from Richard here. He says, I'm 62. And I'm interested in hearing about ways of keeping as fit and healthy as possible as I age. I'm a bit tired of younger hunters talking about slowing down and losing a step. And I understand that that's life and you have to figure out how to deal with it and move forward. But I'm always looking at ways to do that. And I think you might, um, your other listeners might want to know that too. And he's right. I've gotten a number of emails from older gentlemen really kind of saying, how do I accept getting older and how do I stay healthy so that I can keep doing what I love?
1: So this is Richard. This is Richard. Richard, this, this is a fabulous question. This is a really, really juicy one. And I like how he sort of framed it up because here's the thing. If we have the privilege of living until we're 60 or 70 or 80, these are things that as human beings, as Biological uh, organisms with a finite shelf life, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. we are all going to be facing these things. Again, it's a universal human experience. So to me, acceptance of this inevitable biological fact does not have to mean acquiescence, right? It doesn't mean we give up our power. It doesn't mean we don't show up. It doesn't mean we just lay on the couch and eat bonbons all day and like start like smoking cigarettes and these types of things. So you're not giving up your power by acknowledging that, yes, your 62-year-old self might not be able to keep up with your 22-year-old self. So all of that being said, like acceptance is not acquiescence. And just because you can't keep up doesn't mean you're not showing up. Well, like what can you do? And what I would say, and this might just sound frustratingly simple, is keep showing up. Keep doing all of those things to the best of your ability, right? Nutri- looking at your nutrition, making sure you're getting enough protein, making sure you're getting enough carbohydrate to fuel your workouts, fuel your hikes, fuel your hunts, but not so much carbohydrate that you might be. You like know, sugar overload, yeah, like,
0: inflammation, yeah, th- those diabetes. Yes.
1: Staying hydrated, getting your sleep, and then just rinsing and repeating. So practicing that over and over and over.
0: So what about the, like, let's say that Richard's a 62 year old guy who really hasn't taken care of himself. I mean, he sounds like he has, but there's a lot of guys out there they are 62 and they go, Oh man, I better start taking care of myself. I'm 62. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, is it impossible to change your ways at 62? I would say absolutely not.
1: No. If, if the motive, so here's the thing. Being healthy is, it's actually quite boring because yeah. it means you're making these choices on a fairly consistent basis. So it's like 80 80- 75 to 85% plus of the time, you're making good nutritional choices, you're staying hydrated, you're sleeping well, you're going for a walk, you're maybe doing a little bit of weight training, Um, you're maybe dealing with emotional issues, you are maybe having direct and clear communication in your life, these types of things over and over and over every day, day in, day out. For the majority of the time, so I don't think it's impossible to change. You know, we're not going to be able to take a um, 62-year-old couch potato that's you know 60 to 80 pounds overweight and make him look like I don't know who's the hot 20-year-old celebrity. You know, that's not going to happen. But we can make that person the best 62-year-old self that we can, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we can. And if nothing else, even if you can't get any body change, you still can change your mental state, your emotional state, your perspective. You know, you can be grateful that you made it Mm -hmm. 62 years. Maybe you can share some of the knowledge that you've acquired, some of the wisdom that you've acquired over your six decades with folks that are younger.
0: Yeah, I went to a talk yesterday. Our keynote was a a medical doctor and she's i think she's in her 60s. I'm not sure. She's she's I mean, she's still practicing. She's like amazing, but she was talking about coming into the winter of her life, which means she's coming into the last 30 years of her life, right? I and mean, if you look at life as seasons, she's been in the fall of her life for a while now, and she's moving into the winter of her life and she says, you know, it's called a, for her now it's about being happy with having enough, right? And sharing her wisdom now and what she's learned and really taking out the things that maybe she was concerned about that really aren't serving her and helping her and keeping her healthy because the mental state is such a powerful thing at this age mm-hmm. um, you don't have the physicality that you had in the summer and the spring of your life you know you you're moving into a place where now you 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 need to share your wisdom or those mentorships um, share what you know with other people share it with your grandchildren your children your you know kids in your neighborhood like you know go out there and, and mentor some of these young guys who who didn't have fathers or grandfathers who could help them do these things and that's a really, and this is as vital a piece of life as being able to hike up that mountain and be number one to the type, it, to me it's actually it's at, it's more important you yeah, know? We,
1: we desperately need and, wisdom we yeah, desperately need wisdom, we
0: do we're losing that in our culture, you know we're losing our elders uh, uh, f, you know, um, and, and what they have to teach us, and so you know, that's what I would say about this and Jillian is right, life most lives that are fairly healthy are pretty boring. And I always say that. Like, people ask, like, what's your secrets? And I'm like, our life is really boring. Well, yeah, the secret is there
1: is no secret. It's just like
0: consistency, consistency,
1: consistency, consistency.
0: And you know what's interesting is is even now, because I'm older, you know, maybe 10 years ago was a very different stage for me. But even now, I find myself coming somewhere like this, being on vacation, no children, you know, having the freedom to go to bed when I want, hanging out with my friends and making decisions if I want to have a drink or not have a drink, you know. And I find myself uh, making different decisions than I would have 10 years ago because those consistent things for me, I know that at this age even, I feel better when I make those more consistent simple choices and that I can actually enjoy my vacation more. Absolutely. Whereas 10 years ago, the decisions I would make, uh, were very different and I could enjoy my vacation. Whereas now I can't. So I think there's something to be said with that. Um, and I love, you know, acceptance is not Acquiescence. acquiescence. Uh, so beautiful, beautiful, but yep. Just keep those simple things going, Richard. Um, and we're supporting you. Okay, I got one more question, and this is a question I get a lot. This is Todd. He emailed me, and he says he has a simple question. Hmm. What about supplements? Should I just eat healthy food, or should I take meal replacements? Um, Do you think that energy drinks uh, or supplements – there's different brands, different kinds, and do they mess up your body? And so he really wants to know what many, many, many of you have asked me. What about supplements? And uh, that's a big question. <laughs> so
1: for me, I, uh, I like to say this. Supplements, if, are, if they're used, are just that. It's a supplement to this healthy lifestyle that contains all of these foundational aspects of health. I am a fan of things like, and I'm just speaking for, this is just my opinion now. This is not necessarily Hill's opinion or Ryan's or anybody else's. I'm speaking for myself. I am a huge fan of options that make folks' lives easier, right? Convenience. Our brains are hardwired for convenience. So if somebody would rather have a protein shake, right, from a protein powder and some greens powder than they would to, like, sit there and poach salmon and saute kale. I say go for it because a high-quality protein supplement is actually going to be packed with excellent nutrition. And there was a very interesting study that was done comparing over 18 months two groups of people. One group of people ate a whole foods diet, which we would consider, like, you know, no processed foods, no convenience foods. Another group, the second group, ate a whole foods diet plus these convenience options, which included protein powder, greens powder, reds slash fruits powder. And then, well, in the beginning of the study, in the end of the study, they measured the levels in their blood of Micronutrition, vitamins, minerals, antioxidant status; these types of things. Which group do you think did better? Which group had a better outcome at the end of the eighteen months?
0: Obviously, the people who did the convenience.
1: Yep, the ones that added in the convenience options as well. And why is that? Like even folks that even even like folks that are hunting and gardening, we still tend to eat a diet that has like thirty foods or less, right? Mm-hmm. Like so we're getting the same things over and over again. Where some of these uh convenience options are like protein powders or, or multivitamins or what have you, they have more trace or a wider variety of micronutrition to spackle in, you know, if we think about like, I don't know, bricks and mortar, you're sort of like spackling in the spaces that might be missed in even the healthiest diets. We could go down the rabbit hole a little bit deeper and say, you know, the food that we grow, the animals that we eat are only as healthy as the soil that the food is grown in or as healthy as the foods that the animals are eating. And we have an issue with soil uh, stripping and deprivation and erosion and, like, mineral depletion. And if we don't have good stewardship of the environment and good stewardship of our crops, you know, we are missing out on those trace minerals. That can be a defining line for are we going to have mitochondrial dysfunction or are we going to have inflammation? So Mm -hmm. I know that there can be a lot of resistance mentally to something that is, quote, unquote, processed. But when we think about it, you still need that nutrition at the end of the day, and even a loaf of bread or pasta or white rice is just as processed as a protein powder or as a greens powder, which is essentially just vegetables that are dehydrated Mm -hmm. and pounded up so you can mix them into some water or smoothie or thing like that. And as you all
0: know, Ryan, I mean, we figured out, like, we can buy these powders. They're available. There's all different types, and we've taken them. And we thought, oh, we have all this kale that we're not eating. We just dehydrated and started making green powder. And it's it's so convenient. You know how much more kale we actually eat now in the winter? Yes. Because we're not growing kale in the winter. And my girls don't want to eat a big thing of kale. So what do I do? I put green powder in everything. They don't even know it and they eat it. So that is actually bringing in more nutrition. Even to those people who don't know they're getting it because it's so convenient and easy, you know, putting a scoop of that in. So my question about this, and a lot of people want to know, is is especially, like, protein powders. Okay. And the big one, um, and I know you're a big proponent of it, is yeah. whey. Yeah. And so can you... Um uh, you are really uh, one who taught me a lot about whey early on in our careers because you were a, a figure competitor. Uh, I did some bikini. I wouldn't say I was into it as much as you, but we've both kind of been down that road of taking protein powders and figuring out what's the best. And I learned a lot of, from you about the different types of whey. Mm-hmm. So could you just share a little bit about that? So whey is cool because whey, in terms of a performance
1: uh, supplement, muscle building muscle recovery, muscle growth, whey is actually very well studied in the literature. So in terms of protein sources, if folks tolerate whey, I would go for a whey supplement. And I prefer undenatured whey. Undenatured. Okay. Can you explain that? So – Undenatured just means that the whey hasn't been heated up mm-hmm. and like all broken apart. So mm-hmm. it's essentially less processed, but the best research is on the undenatured form. So whey has these constituents that help with, again, muscle growth, muscle recovery, and performance that is lacking in maybe the vegetarian options of pea protein, hemp protein, rice protein, etc. cetera. And hardly ever recommend soy protein Mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons. It's bad for the gut. It's a hormonal disruptor uh, bad for the thyroid. So if folks can tolerate whey, then I say, go for that. I will add on that. I have a significant population of, of my clients that don't tolerate whey well. They can't digest it well. It makes them break out in cystic acne. And in these cases, we'll move to a vegetarian source. Mm -hmm. Now, there's also sort of this new movement like in the, you know, in the paleo community, lots of gelatin, lots of like collagen powders, egg white powders. It's going to be interesting to see like as the study comes, studies come out on those types of proteins, if the effect is similar, because they're animal based. It seems like animal based proteins help better with athletic performance Mm
0: -hmm. or
1: not seems. I mean, that's fairly conclusive in the literature.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I've tried to a lot of different types of way and, you know, the minimally processed are the best for me. Mm -hmm. I just, my gut, I tend to be a little bit more sensitive on that side. Ryan does really, he does good with all ways and he, he really likes those ways. Um, and he, always says you know especially as as active as he is oh my gosh you know he just you can't be climbing a mountain all day and doing the things he did like he just did the death hike he did 37.8 miles in 17 hours without sleep in hell's go canyon ryan. go ryan okay because he's insane go and, Ryan. you know he was the old guy there at 43 and he finished you know in the top four but that's we won't even get into that, but that's his mental state, right? Mm-hmm. He does that, but he couldn't do that without the supplementation of whey and these other products mm-hmm. that, you know, if you're doing that type of activity and, you know, I know an archery elk hunt and some of these backcountry hunt, they are intense activity. You're burning massive calories. Um, your macros and micros have to be in there or you're just going to bonk and you're not going to be able to, if you do get a 300 pounds of meat, you're not going <laughs> to be able to get it out. Yeah. I got to carry that out. <laughs> and so, you know, the supplementation, supplementation is really important. So when these people are asking questions to me, do I think it's important? Yes. Like Jillian said, for nutritional thing. And then it depends on how much activity you're doing Mm -hmm. and what you're doing and what your goal is. My goal, being a little skinny mini, is I like to keep muscle on my body. And I'm not an extreme athlete like Ryan. But if I don't eat enough of these things, Mm -hmm. protein in the morning, some of these supplementation things, I'm going to lose my lean muscle mass because I burn through it faster. I don't have to do a lot. And it's the same for a woman who's maybe 100 pounds overweight. She doesn't have a good lean body composition. But if she's not eating those proteins either, she's mm-hmm. not going to build that lean body composition to lose that fat, right? Yes, yes. It's going to stimulate that metabolism. Yes,
1: absolutely. So so in terms of finding a good protein pattern, yeah. I would say, again, undenatured and then watch out for sweeteners. So, uh, things like sucralose and aspartame, like they're in a lot of these sort of like weird, I'm not really into like the sort of like beefcake type proteins, like the muscle gainers, because they tend to have so many strange and bizarre ingredients that Mm -hmm. can really like disrupt people's digestion. And so those types of things. So if it's going to be a product that has sweetener in it, I would look for things like stevia, Erythritol as natural sweeteners and not things like sucralose. Mm-hmm. So I know that those are just very basic recommendations, but they're also—I mean—but I think that that's like a good place to get started. Yeah. And then just decide what you like. Like, figure out what you like. You know, I tell people all the time, like, do a little bit of experimentation. And right. if it's bloating you every single time you take it, and like all of a sudden you have like a huge cystic acne coming out on your throat that you like never <laughs> had like in twenty years, like it's probably not good for you,
0: right? Like. I mean, if you're bloating up like a balloon and you're thinking you're drinking this stuff to be healthy, you're probably you probably can't digest it well. I mean, even even like pea proteins, I worked in the industry for a while. 20% of the population cannot digest a pea protein. Yeah. So there is an enzyme you can take with it to help you digest it, but most people aren't selling the enzyme with it. So 20% of people buy this healthy you know, this healthy vegetarian protein and they blow up like they did on way. And they're like, what's wrong? It's supposed to be healthy for me. I'm going to drink it anyways because it's supposed to be healthy for me. It's like, you're not digesting it. You're not getting the benefit from it that you should be. And you're causing more really harm to your body by doing it. So again, looking for something else. And some people don't do as well on the convenience foods. And you may be one of that, those people that needs to be thinking more about food prep. Mm-hmm. Making your food, yeah. you can't do those proteins. Maybe you've got too much leaky gut. It's just not going to happen until you heal your gut, right? Mm-hmm. So again, we can change these things. Well, they could do straight up
1: gelatin, which is going to straight up gelatin, which, which is going to help help heal, heal your gut, and as happens to be a wonderful source of protein,
0: right? And it doesn't taste like anything. You and know, it's put neutral. in your smoothie, and it's like
1: one little packet of those Knox gelatin things. Yep. You know, it costs two bucks at the grocery store, and yep. it has eight little packs in them. One pack has eight grams of protein in it, which is like a tablespoon. It's basically like a tablespoon. So that's sort of my take. I I am a fan of convenience foods. I am a fan of supplementation. I do think that they should be as high quality as possible. I do think that the individual has to consider their own personal and psychological preferences and their own unique sensitivity. But I think for most folks, there is is an edge
0: that can be gained. I also, for myself... And because I get the question, like, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? And you Ryan, like, and, I, Ryan <laughs> and I's biochemistry is obviously very different. Yeah, yeah. Jillian's biochemistry is very different than mine even. We're like good friends and, you know, things we can consume are very different. I do better on supplementation. Like if I take every day a good multivitamin, iron, some mitochondrial support, my fish oils, uh, um, B12 and my bees. I literally feel better, I sleep better, and I'm a more anxious type of person, I, my brain moves really fast, and so I burn through a lot of calories, and I don't necessarily want to eat, my tendency is not to eat as much as I should, so taking supplements also reminds me to eat, I know that sounds stupid, but I have to eat when I take my supplements, I also feel better, I, I went along, I've gone long periods of taking no supplements, And when I start taking them again, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's like night and day for me. And I'm not talking convenience, like protein powders and stuff. I'm talking, you know, good base multivitamin, healthy oils, um, B vitamins, adrenal support, mitochondrial support. I do that. I definitely notice the difference. And I eat very healthy and I have a beautiful garden and I have the best meat in the world. But I am just my biochemistry. I need that because I'm burning through those things. Right. Right. I've got a high stress job. I've got two kids. I'm moving, moving, moving. And I feel that for me with even a healthy diet, supplementation, high quality supplements, it's very important for me. So that's why I take them. I mean, I feel the same. They make me feel better too. Yeah. Yeah, plain and simple. So I think that that might be one of our last questions. I know that there's more out there, and we will be doing more Q&As in the future. But um, Jill, thanks for doing this with me. Oh, thanks, Hill. I was going to do this with Ryan, and we just didn't have time to do it before I left. And then I said, I think I'm going to do it with Jillian. He said, oh man, people want to listen to Jillian way more than they want to listen to me. So <laughs> he, so I'm super glad that we, we were able to do this and I was able to get these questions answered. So, all right, everybody, uh, have a good week and we'll be back with our next podcast probably. Um, yeah, we'll be talking about other health topics. So stay tuned. Thanks. Bye, guys. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening to the Hunt Harvest Health podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Visit our website at huntharvesthealth.com for more podcast stories and recipes. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at huntharvesthealth. You can also message me at stealthyhunter, that's S-T-H, and I will be more than happy to answer any questions you might have. Also tag your photos, hunt, harvest, health, or get stealthy as we enjoy seeing what you guys are doing as well.